So today I'm talking to Ingo Hind, Sanjeev Sharma and Xinwei Chen of the James Hutton Institute. Uh, this group works on a wide variety of different topics, mainly to do with genetics and molecular, molecular type work. So Ingo, I'm just going to hand it over to you and perhaps you could explain the background to what your team does. Thank you, Jenny. So a really big moment for our research was the release of the potato genome in 2011. And Sanjeev was actually really instrumental. He was the first author on, on this paper. So it was an international effort. Um, loads of countries were involved to look at the chromosomes of potato. But what it actually is giving us is a blueprint of the organization of the important genes within the genome of potato. It's a relatively big genome, 840 million base pairs. Um, I always say if you were to print this out on paper, on A4 sheets of paper and you line them all up, you cover a distance of 2,600 kilometers. It's sort of up and down um, <laughs> Australia, is it? It's the length of the Australian East Coast. Okay. Wow. So now potatoes are unusual, aren't they, in that they have four genes instead of two, like most other normal animals, plants, humans. Right. Yeah. So they've got a particularly complicated genome. Yes, and the genetics is complicated because it's an outbreeder, which translates, it's like herding cats. So <laughs> once, once you have all the good genes together, all the attributes that you want, the moment you set up a cross, they will scatter. And it's really difficult to bring these genes back together. Yep. So one thing we've been doing um, is looking at disease resistance in particular. So looking at the, the farming in, in Ireland, the west coast of Scotland um, in the 1840s, fast forward 170 years, or more than 170 years, um, we've had a look at over 700 cultivars that are grown throughout the world. And rather disappointingly, we've been recycling the same resistance genes that control late blight, mm -hmm. nematodes, um, viruses over and over again. So, also we have identified many more resistance genes, we are using very few of them effectively. So, it's disappointing on one hand, but it's also providing us with a huge opportunity in terms of breeding. And we work very closely with our own breeders here at the James Hutton Institute, or through James Hutton Limited, um, to actually produce these new varieties with stacked resistances that are effective against different diseases. So, from viruses, which becoming much more important. We see climate change uh, in mm -hmm. Scotland. We had an incredibly warm summer last year and the aphids that transmit these viruses were found all the way up uh, the north coast of Scotland as well. So viruses become important. Late blight can be important one year, less important mm -hmm. the next year. Uh, and nematodes is a big problem for the seed potato industry because if your land is contaminated with potato cyst nematodes, you can't grow um, seed potatoes commercially. So do you think, like, given that we've been recycling those same genes all this time, is there resistance building within the, the populations of pests to those genes? Unfortunately, yes. So these resistances, um, they were literally deployed since the 1960s, effectively. The pathogen population has adapted to this. So and that's why some of the older varieties that we're growing, and you know, Mars Piper is the number one cultivar in, in the UK, um, actually has no effective resistance um, other than against Globodera rostochiensis. So it, literally, you have to spray it if you want to grow it. Mm, right. So yeah. it's, it's um, okay. depressing on one hand, but there's an opportunity <laughs> at the other. So, so you're now identifying new resistance genes 
and finding ways to incorporate them into new varieties. Is that? Yes, yeah, so we have the Commonwealth Potato Collection here, CPC, um, which is a fantastic resource that underpins a lot of our research. Um, every year, uh, a part of the Commonwealth Potato Collection has grown. We have in total 1,500 accessions. Between 60 and 80s are grown every year. We routinely screen them for resistances. And whatever is interesting, we then take forward in a molecular study and make sure it's a new resistance. And then we provide markers for the breeders. So they have a tool that allows them to bring these resistances in. Okay. So these are grown true potato seed. You're yes. Them from. So um, I think like, you have to stop them from hybridizing in the field. And so how the do you do that? The, the CPC, you're right, the CPC is grown from true potato seeds um, and it's actually deliberately on a very slow rotation. So it takes about 20 years to go through the entire CPC yeah. and that's to preserve the diversity. Every time you grow plants up and we grow up a number of plants per, it's called an accession, they're yeah. then cross-pollinated to maintain the diversity. But yeah. the, the problem is also if you go back to a seed package and you grow another plant, it will be different to the plants that you might have looked at. So you have to be really, w once you're committed, you have to maintain this one plant mm. through cuttings or tubers. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, maybe Chin, yes. do you want to explain what you do? My name is Chen. Uh, officially, my post title is um, a Potato Pre-Breeder and a Geneticist, but I would describe myself as a potato science translator <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. I, I'm doing something that quite applied can be directly applied to breeding and yeah. uh, I focus on three areas for example uh, something to do with the CPC as Ingo suggested potato is highly heterozygous but self-incompatible. One reason I want to change the situation is that I want to use the SLE gene. SLE gene is uh, s locus inhibitor genes which can make self-incompatible compatible. That means oh. normally potato, deployed potato is self-incompatible. So you have cross to uh, with cross with plant. different lines, different yeah. lines mm. to get the seeds. Yeah. But this caused a huge problem. As Inga suggested, we have every year we have to do, we have to raise the plant from uh, 2050 something and yeah. mix uh, the pollen of all these plants and uh, pollination oh. each year, yeah. well, on each plant, yeah. and keep going for year a year and even century. If we don't <laughs> change anything, this will go going on, right? Generation after generation, all the time. But with the discovery of this gene, this gene, we can do something different because we yeah. can make it selfable. That means we can solve it. And then what I plan to do is to cross the CPC. Of course, at the moment, we can't do a thousand something. We only yeah. a thousand maybe yeah. CPC accessions. And uh, doing crosses with the gene donor, for example, M6, which is very popularly used mm. in potato communities, mm. will follow by successive selfing mm. to get them homozygous, yes. homo high homozygous lines. How cool! The second second area is that I'm translating what Ingo has generated, so-called Duransic data for the resistant genes. 
we scan every SMP, SMP single nucleotide polymorphisms yeah. among these uh, yeah. you know, breeding yeah. lines. And then we select those that's most transferable and sometimes even up to 100%. So as a result, our markers are highly transferable. And uh, okay. we are very happy that our breeding companies are using these markers for the oh. screen. So, <coughs> so this is like you make a new variety and you can screen it with these for these markers. But if, if it's a new variety produced during using conventional breeding, then it will have the, that weird genome. And you don't know whether it's being expressed, do you? Typically, res resistance gene, if it's present, it tends to be expressed and functional. Um, there are some exceptions where the genetic background matters, but overall, if a gene is there, it tends to be functional. So if it's there, even if it's just one copy of that gene has the, has the resistance function and the other three don't, but they, it will still work? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, perfectly, because this, this specific SNPR pinpoint, we know that this one is resistant to haplotype. Yeah. It's functional. What is interesting is working with breeders, they are no-nonsense people. Yeah. So we do our research um, and they say, well, we, we're happy to try it. And yeah. they will use these markers, they will assess them brutally. And if they don't work, you will hear back from them. Um, <laughs> breeders are never happy. They want more markers and they want markers that work. And if uh -huh. you don't take these boxes, they get back to you. Yeah. So it's, it's actually good because it validates our work uh, yeah. independently as well. Oh wow! And the third area is we are harnessing the you know the power of machine learning technologies for breeding. Yeah. Because now we got we can use a lot of huge data, and uh, yes. I think uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence is a born technology for breeding. Well, that's interesting because it also changes how science has changed for us, because yeah. we used to be all in the lab ourselves. Now we let big companies generate the data, so the emphasis is much more on the analysis, and you have to be really sort of clued up how to analyze the data. So a lot of expertise goes into the analysis rather than the generation of data now. And I guess that's where global collaborations are important, because we all, you know, everybody is looking at potato uh, worldwide, a different aspect, and if we can share the data and the sort of traits that are associated with the sequence data, yeah we actually accelerate the way we can make discoveries. Before genome sequencing, I always try to give this example like going to a library blindfolded and looking for a book. Mm. You will have, and now we know which book is where by genome sequencing the coordinates. So we can straight away go to that yeah. gene. Yeah. So we all here, our colleagues, we are exploiting and leveraging the advance which was made by genome sequencing. And it was an international effort. Uh, 16, 17 institutes, and our institute led the UK part, and it was uh, I was involved, and it was led by Glenn Bryan, our esteemed colleague, who is now retired. So, and since then, and Ingo mentioned he has developed RENSEEQ and very like great diagnostic tools for pest resistance, mm -hmm. and we are developing more towards like quantitative traits and mm -hmm. where. The genes, as, as I said, the trait is not controlled by a single gene. So yeah. th there we really have to go very open, like the, the information or the signal can come from anywhere in the genome. Yeah. So we are leveraging the genome sequencing to develop very advanced high throughput genotyping technologies. 
So are, are any of the like resistance to blight, say, is it, you know, you can, can you increase resistance through a single gene or is it always going to be a multiple gene needed to get that effect? So a single gene can give you control, but you're very vulnerable. So the moment the pathogen can adapt to this one, you lost your resistance. So yeah. ideally you have multiple sources of resistance with completely different mechanisms controlling late blight, um, especially late blight, because you see changes quite quite rapidly. Every infection will release millions of spores. You have diversity within these spores. All it takes is to one spore to be adapted to this new resistance, and you've lost it. So the trend now, or the, the community works towards now combining different resistance sources just to make it more durable. Um, and it's also, I think it's important because as a farmer, if somebody says you have a resistant variety and you decide not to spray and then you lose your crop, that could be a huge financial loss. So you really want to make sure that it's as bulletproof as possible. So you have multiple sources in there to make sure that yeah. any person can overcome it will be really, really rare. So just so as I understand it, so there's a lot of, of diseases which... A single gene can confer resistance, but it's fragile. But for things like dry matter, it's more commonly multiple genes all contribute a small amount That's towards that towards yeah. that outcome. Most of the commercially important traits are quantitative in potato. They are yeah. very less dominant traits, like flesh color, tuber shape, eye. Yeah. That they are dominant traits, like single locus. But others right. are like quantitative traits where several thousand loci contributing small, small effects. That's where machine learning, genomic prediction technologies, because we can then direct the breeding program which parents to use to develop the breeding. Yeah. That's right. how this will work. Yes. So, so to release a potato variety, you know it is same worldwide. It takes around 12 to 13 years to release a variety yeah. and then to bulk it up through uh, multiplication. So in breeding, what we are trying to do is to expedite this process and bring it forward by four or five years. Mm -hmm. That's where genomic prediction, whichever yeah. way we achieve it, will help that we can do speed breeding, we can like develop crosses, then mm -hmm. test their genomic potential without growing them. So we can, in an informed way, direct our breeding programs to the more potential genetic material to use. And yeah. that's how the improvement will come. So, so but uh, I guess at that point too, you're kind of ground-truthing it to test like, okay, well we've predicted that this one will be resistant and this one will have no resistance. Yeah, you have to. Um, yeah. Every new cultivar that you release has to be tested. So it has mm. to be on a national list trial and pathogen uh, resistant as a must-have um, mm. for new cultivars. Yeah. I think one of the issues is, um, as we all explained, so the technology has evolved really quickly. But we also, we have to convince the consumers to actually buy these varieties because if we breed them, but there's no market for them, yeah, then it sort of begs the question, why are we doing all this, this, this investment and the research into potato? Yeah. And I personally think that will actually change the moment supermarkets have to put a carbon footprint on their product. So if they can say, right, here's a potato that required less nitrogen, you know, nitrogen costs mm. have gone through the mm. roof, yeah. uh, fertilizer cost, uh, requires less nitrogen, less water, um, far fewer chemical applications, therefore the footprint is significantly reduced compared to another cultivar, 
I think that's when we will start seeing a shift that these new varieties that we can breed readily um, will be used and adopted by consumers. And farmers would love to grow them, to be honest, because yeah. it's a big saving for them, higher profit margin. Yeah. But we in the UK seem to be struggling with getting them into the supermarket and um, being accepted.